0: Okay, if you have not heard about Cash App, you're gonna love me. You want more from all these free apps used for just free and fast money transfers, right? Well, I've got the hookup for you. The Cash App. The Cash App card is a free Visa debit card that lets you use your Cash App balance to pay online and in stores. It's also the only way to get Boost. Now, let me tell you about Boost because it's exclusive to Cash App. Boost are reusable instant discounts that work at places you actually go to, everywhere from Starbucks to Walmart. So even the... PlayStation Network store. You can do so much more than buy and save money with this. You can even purchase shares of stock in companies you love by investing as little as one dollar. Banking is also made easy. With Cash App, you can directly deposit paychecks, tax returns, and more to your Cash App balance using the unique account and routing numbers. And if you don't think things can get any cooler, it does by allowing you to buy and sell Bitcoin, the money of the future. Selling and receiving money on Cash App is as easy as entering a phone number using another user's name or simply scanning a QR code. Hit the special link in the show notes and get $5 just for signing up. That is use that link in the show notes and get $5 just for signing up. So go on, go ahead and hit that link in the show notes and get set up with Cash App today. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. All right, folks, it's great to have you all here again. If things sound a little bit more recent, it's because I've just finished my trip around Virginia. I think I can say I've been to almost every city in the Commonwealth, except South Boston, because who actually wants to go there or Halifax? Um, it's been it's been an interesting time being on the road and what's even more ironic Is a good friend of the show logan albright, you know him as the director of research for free the people He's an author and filmmaker. He's done a bunch of cool things. I'm gonna go ahead and include in the show notes He had recently been back down to afton to so one of my favorite distilleries silverback distillery and there, there's just one thing I want to you know mention before we start the show it You know, I needed to go on this trip primarily for my own sanity, being stuck in home like many of you. All I had to kind of understand what was going, you know, around the country was watching the news and working in a newsroom. You just get really stuck in your own corner of things. And it's not really great for one, your physical health, but secondly, your spiritual and mental health. And actually getting out of the city and getting to visit the rest of the Commonwealth of Virginia, my home of almost a decade and a half now, it, it really showed me that we need to let individuals make their own choices because what the one thing that I saw was that there are just dozens and dozens of ghost towns throughout the southern end of the Commonwealth. And you could tell the difference between Businesses that have been closed down for a little while and then businesses that had recently closed down because of the COVID crisis. And those are the people who have lost completely everything that they've built their lives building up. And they're never going to get exposed to, you know, everyone else in the Beltway who was able to work from home. Like myself, I'm blessed i have been able to do that. But, I mean, we need to understand that if we're going to go ahead and make decisions like this again in the future, it has a very deadly cost. And, you know, going through the parts of Virginia I went through where we've got a giant opioid crisis where crime and poverty are on the rise. It takes people who are able to, you know, take their own lives into account and take risks. Those are the people that are ultimately going to come out on top. And they're the ones that we ultimately need to depend on because entire communities really rely on businesses and entrepreneurs so logan went ahead and sent me um the film that he worked on it's a short documentary we're going to talk about now and it really is i mean the timing couldn't have been better one because i went through afton uh coming back and it's about basically entrepreneurs rising to the call of their community And I'm going to go ahead and shut up and just bring him on. Logan, thank you so much for uh, joining the program today. I got to tell you, after watching your documentary, it, it really, there's not a lot of good stuff coming out on TV. There's not a lot of good news on YouTube. Your film really showed people that in very small ways, business owners, entrepreneurs, really civic leaders down to their core have the ability to rise to the call when they're needed. And I think that message is needed now more than ever.
1: I totally agree. And thanks so much for having me back on. It's always a pleasure to be here.
0: So what, what kind of prompted this whole thing? I know that it was, really, it was really talking about the hand sanitizer crisis, and I feel silly saying that, but we just went through the toilet paper crisis, and now we're going through the guns and ammo crisis. And a month before that, it was the meat crisis, where people couldn't go get a double burger from Wendy's. Uh, wh- when did you kind of plan this out, and what prompted you to go ahead and drive down to Afton and, and really talk to you know everyone at Silverback about what they're doing other than just distilling whiskey?
1: Right. Well, we've been friends with the folks at Silverback for a couple of years. We know uh, Christine Riggleman, who's the master distiller over there. And uh, we heard that they were doing this and it's sort of an unusual thing that they are doing. They suspended all of their spirits production uh, and they started making hand sanitizer to distribute around to first responders, people who need it, you know, hospitals and uh, paramedics and things like that. Uh, And I thought that was a really cool story. So we decided to go down and document it. And I relate totally to what you were saying earlier about being cooped up. Uh, we were all so desperate to get out of the house and do something different because we've been stuck inside for three months. Uh, so it was really great to drive down to Afton and meet up with Christine and just figure out what they're doing there. Uh, I think the story really has kind of two prongs to it. The first is the idea that without being told to, without being forced to, uh, business owners saw a gap in the market, this the shortage of hand sanitizer. No one could get it. And they had the tools to do it because hand sanitizer is basically just distilled alcohol without any flavor. Um, so they have the the technology and the expertise to know how to make it Uh, they saw there was an opening in the market where there was a shortage of it and then people needed it Uh, and they decided to start producing it and making it and it's important to point out that they weren't Uh making any money off of it at first anyway They were not allowed to sell it the the uh, government regulations prohibited them from selling the hand sanitizer So they were just giving it away free to people who needed it and they continue to do that to a certain extent They are able to sell some of it now, but it's largely a charitable act, which is pretty great Um, And then the other half of the story is just the tremendous cost that is being imposed on business owners by the government lockdowns for the coronavirus and how much money they're losing, how uh, much of their operation they've had to either change or shut down. And the ramifications of that over a period of years, like one of the things I like to point out with this is. When you make whiskey, you have to age it in barrels for a minimum of five years pretty much in order to make it good and drinkable. So if they're not making whiskey now, they're making hand sanitizer. That means five years from now, there's going to be a shortage of whiskey that they won't have been aging for that amount of time. So it's not like they can just flip a switch and say, "Okay, we're done locking down. Everything's back to normal. This is going to have consequences that ripple out for many years to come.
0: Absolutely. And the thing that bothers me the most is that. In in many ways, when I was driving uh, past Charlottesville and through Afton in in Virginia specifically, and I know we've got listeners, I'm getting emails from people who are listening in Germany. The thing is, like um, you know, when you look at the European Union, for example, you've got very small countries. I mean, Texas is larger than has a larger population than most of Europe itself. And the one thing that I try and really explain and some people think I'm kind of talking in, you know, vague elementary terms, is that when I say the United States is different, I really mean that. I mean you can go from the West coast to the East coast and people just have a different mentality about things. I've lived all over the country and people have different cultures. People have different lifestyles. We're remarkably different. And the one thing that has bothered me more recently um, has been living inside the beltway where typically we skew left. And I'm not saying that negatively, it's just the culture of where we live. But the one thing that troubles me is that there's a lack of trust in the entrepreneurial spirit of many Americans And I see that now, Um, you know, months ago, we were talking about toilet paper shortages and shortages of meat and stuff. And people were wondering why they were watching videos of dairy farmers having to dump out milk. They they don't understand that a lot of the country has to do very grueling work in order to keep our, you know, middle class lives alive. And when you drive through places like Afton, when you look at a distillery, I mean, that silverback alone, they employ a good chunk of the town, that town doesn't just need a distiller. That job needs, I mean, that town needs a job creator. And when they go ahead and do things like this, they're not just supporting Afton with hand sanitizer. In the documentary, you mentioned that, you know, their hand sanitizer were going to hospitals, to first responders as far as Charlottesville and elsewhere. I mean, I think the one thing that we need to realize is that if there's one source of progress that's going to take us out of this, you know, this mindset of a depression we're in right now, besides the economic one that I think we're going to face very soon. It's that entrepreneurial spirit of people that didn't ask permission to do something. It's just that they did it.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is a really good illustration of how people don't understand how supply chains work and how complex the economy is. Uh, these kind of command and control measures coming to, from the top down in governments saying, oh, we're going to decide who the essential workers are and they're going to keep working and then the non-essential workers aren't going to keep working. Well, there's no, there are no non-essential workers. Everything is connected. Everything is linked. Uh, one of the things we were talking about with, with the distillery is, um, you know, they can't find uh, bottles or caps for their bottles to, to put the uh, hand sanitizer in because maybe someone who manufactures plastic Caps for bottles in another state in a factory is not considered an essential worker because why would he be? It's just caps for bottles, no one thinks about it. But when you actually have to produce a product, there's all these steps that go into it. You have to, you have to get the bottle, you have to get the caps, you have to get the labels, the labels have to be printed, ink has to be made. You know, it reminds me of that classic libertarian text eye pencil by Leonard Reed about how, you know, no one knows how to make a pencil, an object that's apparently very simple, but it takes so many different people with so many different skill sets to produce it. Uh, That it's incredibly complicated and it's the same way with everything in the economy So when you try to shut down one segment and think well, this segment's not that essential We'll just shut them down. It has this ripple effect and it affects everybody and I think we're we're learning that and you really see it with the shortages because People think that they can kind of dictate What products are going to be produced and in what quantities and where they're going to go and how they're going to get distributed But when you shut down the mechanism of incentives that allows entrepreneurs and business owners to fill the needs that they're seeing and, and uh, produce what they need to produce and distribute where they need to distribute and you think you're to gonna, gonna tell them from on high how to do that, the whole thing collapses and you don't have any toilet paper and you don't have any beef and these whole industries just stop working because the the complex mechanism where everything interacts with each other has been disrupted and it's it's very reminiscent of what you saw in the Soviet Union where You had these commissars who tried to decide how many screws are going to get made and what size and where they're going to get Distributed and you just get shortages all over the place and nothing works It's such a complex Interactive system that you really just have to kind of get out of the way and let it work because it's all based on Individuals making decisions that are best for them given their information at that particular time
0: the the thing that I watched, it's in the middle of the film, that really made my blood boil was when, uh, I think it was Christine and one of her daughters were talking about the process for getting their specific hand sanitizer approved. And I know you mentioned in the film that the one that they are primarily producing is the FDA recipe. Was it the recipe for that? Yeah, from I them? think
1: it's a CDC recipe, actually. but uh, okay. Or maybe FDA, I can't remember. But yeah, they, there was one approved recipe that they were allowed to make and were able to do pretty easily. But because they're using different materials, um, they use some donated beer and wine to, as their base to, to distill from that was donated from other breweries and wineries in the area that couldn't use the products because all the restaurants are closed down. Um, so when they wanted to use that kind of stuff, they have to use a different recipe. And in order to get that recipe approved by the FDA, that took a lot of time and effort. So it slowed down the process considerably.
0: I, I imagine if they had actually gone through that process of going through the CDC with their own, you know, take on the recipe. I mean, in the film, it mentions it could have taken up to like seven months to a year. And it's like, right now the, the need is right now. And what are they willing to do? They're willing to say, "Oh, all these people who are the first, you know, the first line responders who need this stuff. Well, they could get it from here, but we don't like it. So we'd rather them not have anything than have this one recipe that takes slight variations on what we have approved." That that thinking, that's I I don't understand how so-called smart people can make such dumbass decisions from stuff like that.
1: Well, that's sort of the catch of, of uh, the pretense of knowledge you know, that government officials often have, is they think that they're very smart because they've been told they're smart their whole lives. And when you think you're smart and that's the best tool that you're, uh, that's available to you, you tend to want to use that to solve every problem. But it, it's impossible for one person, no matter how intelligent they are, to solve these problems.
0: What what were some of the challenges you saw walking around the distillery because I mean going from making whiskey to making hand sanitizer that that was that was kind of a drastic change for them
1: Yeah, I don't think that was too hard for them because it is all alcohol, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just different percentages and they don't have to worry about flavor or aging or anything. Um, But I think the biggest challenge they faced when they were talking to me was about uh, shipping, trying to distribute because shipping alcohol is a whole other set of regulations that you have to deal with. So that was what they were struggling with when we were there trying to figure out what was going on. they they were trying to find a way to ship this product out of state because otherwise they couldn't get it to where it was needed people had Wait, to physically so, come to the distillery and pick it up
0: so they treat hand sanitizer because there is alcohol you know it is alcohol they treat that the same way they would treat mailing whiskey or any other type of alcoholic beverage
1: apparently so i don't know if it's exactly the same but there are certainly restrictions on it you have to get permits in order to be able to ship it and distribute it i guess you could technically get drunk off of it if you really wanted to but why would Not desperate it's like people who
0: drink benadryl to get drunk yeah i don't
1: understand why you would do that It's, it's so much cheaper to just go get vodka um but yeah one of the things i wanted to say is i think you know it's hard to find anything good coming out of this coronavirus thing but you have seen a lot of regulations sort of relaxed because there's an emergency and we need to get things done and i'm hoping that will make people realize well if we need the regulation less during an emergency why do we need it more when it's not an emergency clearly that the regulation is in the way it's it's causing problems for people so we should have it relaxed all the time why do we have the regulation in the first place if when we really need uh products being shipped around when we're really in a desperate situation we're going to relax the regulation that should be an indication to people that these regulations are a hindrance not a help
0: Absolutely. I mean, just in terms of alcohol alone, I don't know how things have been in your neighborhood, but let me tell you, the recycling around here is a lot louder than it's ever been before. (laughs) I mean, everyone is going to come out as needing to go on some type of like you know, juice, cleanse, detox because of our collective hangover. But, um, you know, you you mentioned something, which is a a lot of people are now starting to understand a lot of these regulations, a lot of these setbacks preventing people from voluntarily working with each other and trading goods and services. they, They weren't there for any other reason than to limit competition or to go ahead and keep a permanent thumb on somebody's progress. Do you think that situations like this, just the simple you know, just the simple objective of getting hand sanitizer out to people. Do you think that they're starting to understand, you know what, maybe when we kind of free the market a little bit, we can we can take care of ourselves? Or do you think that they've really begun to kind of, you know, hunker down and think the only way to solve a lot of our problems, complex problems, local problems that we should be taking care of, should, you know, really be allocated out to the government.
1: I'm hoping that people will start to realize that the regulations are getting in the way and uh, I'm hoping that some of the relaxations we've seen will continue to be relaxed going forward. I'm not sure if that will actually happen, but that's my hope. Uh, Because like I said, if if you don't need them now, then surely you don't need them anytime. And, And you were quite right when you said that the, the uh, the reason for a lot of these regulations is to stop competition. If you just look at the alcoholic beverages industry in Virginia, there are different rules for the beer, the breweries, the wineries, the cideries, and the distilleries. They all have to operate under different rules, and it's a lot easier to be a brewery or a winery. Uh, or a cidery than it is to be a distillery for the most part. And the, a large reason for that is that they don't want the competition. The breweries go to the government and lobby them. The wineries go to the government and lobby them and say, we don't want to be uh, have whiskey competing with our beer. And so they impose stricter regulations on whichever group has the least power. Uh, hopefully that kind of stuff will start to relax a little bit as we see that we we have better results when we let people be free to innovate. But I don't know.
0: The the one place I really wanted to go during my trip was this um, cidery outside of Lexington between Natural Bridge and Lexington. They have this really good hard cider that I tried when I was in college a few years ago at a bar, but I actually wanted to go to where they made everything. And when I showed up, they had a sign that didn't just say closed. It said permanently closed. So I was... I I was kind of upset about that. I looked into the local news to see what happened basically because they had to shut down because, okay. The the thing about Virginia that, and I know some other States have this, any ABC state always has these laws, but you are treated differently if you're a distillery or a brewery, if you have a restaurant or food component versus if you just serve drinks And, uh, you know, to serve food, that takes a lot of extra time, money, and effort to go ahead and do. So if you were serving food, even if it's just, you know, small appetizers and stuff, you were still deemed essential because you could deliver um, for a lot of these places, they didn't make money off the food. They went ahead and opened up restaurant components and things like that, so they could at least stay open and have more leverage in terms of what they could do of customers, serving them more drinks versus if they can only do tastings. And essentially, this the cidery. They didn't have a restaurant. But the other thing is they weren't classified as an actual apple orchard because what you have to do in Virginia, apparently to be classified as an orchard is you have to be able to sell, you know, giant bushels of apples to local markets. And they didn't do that. They only had enough property to go ahead and have enough apple trees to, you know, put back into their drinks. So one, they're not a restaurant because they didn't Want to go ahead and add that extra stress to their lives. Then they didn't have enough property and they didn't have large, wide scale distribution. So then they couldn't sell apples to other stores and stuff. So now what do you have? You have a place that was employing people that has essentially died because of all that. But the part that was really crazy was that they could not prove to the Virginia Department of Agriculture that they were socially distancing when they sent out people to go collect apples. And it's like all these things put together, I, I understand that we all wanted to save grandma. Listen, I, I, I understand that. I understand that for a lot of people with immune-compromised systems, there, is a, there was a threat with this, but there's almost no sympathy put towards these businesses that had all these compounding issues that all this did was put the death nail in their final coffin.
1: Yeah, this is the problem. And yeah, like I totally agree with you. We all want to protect the people who are vulnerable and make sure that they're safe. But no one ever considers the consequences of these decisions. No one ever, once you're focused on one problem, it's like people become blind to all the other problems that result. And they act as if it's costless to impose these things. We'll just shut everything down for three months and everyone will be safe. Well, there's another cost that comes along with that, a huge cost, and people didn't consider that. They were just so focused on this one problem, they were unable to see any other problems. And I think people think, they have this misconception that entrepreneurs and business owners are rich billionaires and they can do whatever we want. Yeah, we'll shut them down for six months, who cares? Uh, Because these businesses make a lot of revenue, but revenue is not profit, you know? And a lot of these businesses have very narrow profit margins, especially in the food and drink industry, they don't make a lot of profits and they can't afford to not operate or sell products for three months, four months, six months. Uh, And so you see a lot of permanent closures like the one you're talking about because you're basically legally compelled to go out of business, which is horrible. It's, it's indefensible in my view. And you know, life is risk. There's, there's an element of risk. Every time you walk outside your door, you could get hit by a car, you could get hit by lightning. Uh, We have to balance those risks on an individual level and to say that we're not gonna give anybody the choice. you know, No one has to go to a cidery if they're afraid, if they wanna protect themselves, you can stay home, fine. But why can't someone who is willing to take the risk, is young and healthy and not immunocompromised, say, hey, I wanna go get a glass of cider. Uh, Why can't I do that? And it's these kind of broad blanket top-down solutions that they act like we can impose on everybody uh, indiscriminately without taking into account the individual circumstances or the individual choices of the people involved.
0: It, exactly. When when you went down to film this, was it during phase one or phase two? Uh,
1: I think it was just at the end of phase one. They were about to enter phase two.
0: Did what, was anyone there doing tastings? Still, were they able to do that?
1: Yeah, um, I think they were all doing it kind of off the premises. Like they had mm-hmm. a, they had a cocktails to go service where they would give people cocktails through their window, socially distanced with a mask on, and they would take the cocktails elsewhere and do them. They had some tables outside that were all six feet apart. So you could kind of sit out there and drink your drink. Um, but yeah, they were, they were doing some tastings, things, but it was all very cautious and socially distanced. And they were talking about how the customers were unhappy. <laughs> you know, the customers were complaining about it. They're like, I just want to drink my drink. Why do I have to follow all these rules? I'm not worried. Um, but they don't, they're not given a choice.
0: It's, it it's been funny seeing how people react to this and i mean i i've i've been telling some of my more left wing friends it's like if boeing did not have the cash on hand as they were as they were coming into this crisis do you think a lot of small businesses and family owned businesses had the cash on hand to not make money for several months or more um i was i was in Harrisonburg on sunday and you know schools out but a lot of those businesses, they closed before a lot of the lockdowns happened because as the students went home, uh, because they had to finish off the semester online, what does that do to the local economy? A lot of those businesses were not making the money they would typically make. So going through Harrisonburg, I remember I had been there years ago. I wanted to check out all these bookstores. I wanted to check out all these different restaurants. There were only, like in this entire town, there were maybe less than seven or eight businesses actually opened and they were all restaurants that already had an outdoor patio space to go ahead and let people in. It's, I I don't understand how, I, 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 I could blame the government all I want, but there are a lot of regular people like us who just think that businesses will just get by. And I just don't, I see a lot of small businesses never returning from this, and I don't think they're ever going to get the attention that they deserve because when you eliminate small businesses, what you're killing is a lot of the local culture that made a lot of these places what they were.
1: Yeah, the irony of all this is that the people pushing the lockdowns the hardest are always the ones who criticize Walmart, criticize Amazon, say buy local, uh, they want their handcrafted goods and services for their hometown. Um, but those, what do you think, which shops do you think are going to go out of business? You think Amazon's going to go out of business when they have an enforced, everybody has to order things online because they can't go out to retail stores. You think Walmart's going to go out of business? No, the little mom and pop shops are what's going to go out of business. And the net result of the lockdowns is going to be this consolidation of power, these monopolies into a few large companies and they're going to buy up all the ones that went out of business or, or just not replace them. And you're going to have less choice. You're going to have less character. You're going to have less culture. And it's I, I can't make people see that. It's the same people who hate Amazon are the same people who want to destroy through policy all of these small businesses. I can't understand what the logic is there.
0: Um, in Afton, I know there are a few other, um, distilleries and breweries. Were they open? I mean, what, what was it like when you went out there? It's a pretty small space to begin with and everything is pretty spread out, but I don't understand how a lot of those businesses are going to be able to stay around if nobody's going. What was that like?
1: Yeah. So I went to two restaurants while I was there. Uh, one of them had to be do takeaway. So we had to order at the window and, and take it back to our Airbnb uh, to eat it. Another one was open on the patio, but all the tables were six feet apart. All the staff was wearing masks and everything. So that was okay. It wasn't too bad. But um, those were a couple places that were open. A lot of places were not open at all or closed. Um, you can get by, it's actually worse here. I live in Washington, DC in the heart of the district. And it's weird walking around downtown, man, because partially it's because of the uh, the protests and the riots and everything, but everything's boarded up. And you, you walk down a street that used to be a thriving, vibrant uh, little suburb or something. And it's just, it looks like a, a ghost town. Everything has got plywood over it. Nothing's open. Uh, it's getting a little bit better now because things are opening up a little bit more and some of the, the violence has died down, but it's really strange.
0: What, what do you think this is going to do to the psychology of at least people within your community right now? Because just because people can start going out, when, when D, I know DC is behind Virginia. You guys are still in like a phase one, phase zero type of thing. But like my... I've been having this conversation with my brother, Ryan. He's really excited to start going back to the movie theater and me. me too. I want to go to the movies just as much as anyone else does. I like getting my overpriced popcorn and soda and sitting down with a bunch of strangers in a room that kind of smells like trash. I just kind of miss it. I miss it. But I don't think a lot of people are going to be as excited to jump back in as possible because just because they can, I, I feel like there's going to be that mental block saying, but is the danger still there for some of these things?
1: Yeah, I worry about that as well. And a, a lot of people seem to be really scared. I think the media really got under people's skin and really terrified them. And even though you know the WHO and the CDC are no longer recommending that you wear a mask if you're just out in public, unless you have symptoms or you're dealing with a patient with coronavirus, they're saying the mask doesn't do anything for you. Uh, everybody out here is still wearing them all over the place. People are afraid to go places. I, I yeah, I've talked to lots of people who say they're not going to go out and do things even when they're allowed to because they're afraid. Uh, I think it's a little bit silly, you know. I think we need to we need to get back into being a society again and having a social fabric where we hang out with each other and we see each other, we shake hands, we hug, we do whatever. Um, I'd, I'd like to see that return, and I'm I'm missing movie theaters as well. I think they're scheduled to open up in D.C. on July 20th at this point. Uh, I don't know what kind of measures they're going to take to make that acceptable. But yeah, I I think a lot of people are just kind of willing to accept, I'm just going to stay home for the rest of my life, which I can't, it surprises me. I can't believe people are so easily frightened and cowed by this kind of stuff, but it's very disappointing.
0: I didn't, one of the things that bothered me very early on, I liked the idea of getting to work from home. It's always been my goal to work remotely. So that way I can go anywhere. I can ultimately dictate what I'm going to do. I'm more efficient when I'm more comfortable in a familiar space. But the one thing that bothered me, and it still bothers me, which is why I took this trip, it's, you know, I want to be able to go to my local Starbucks. I want to be able to go to the park and work. I want to be able to go out and you know see my friends and stuff. And that was the one thing that I was really deprived of. Almost everything in my area couldn't really go out and do the normal things. Yeah, you could go get food, and you know I was I was I was ordering more takeout than I've typically done in my entire life. But it's that social component that you mentioned that I didn't realize I needed as much until it wasn't there. And I can do Zoom conferences with my colleagues and stuff. We do, we still do regular meetings but it's it's different in a way. And I think with, you know, this is the one thing that I'm still kind of iffy on. They keep saying we're going to get a second wave of coronavirus in the winter and we might have to go back in phases. The thing about these phases is I don't really think it's mitigating much of the risks that they think it will because in Virginia, phase two, all of our movie theaters are opening up July 15th. And I was excited for that. They're not showing any new movies, which is... You know something that's a little concerning. They're showing older films, Blade Runner, The Dark Knight, um, stuff like that. You know, classics that people would want to see on the big screen. But I mean, how many people are going to want to go back and one see that? Secondly, how many people are going to want to go back and work at? their job at the movie theater. I was talking to somebody who was a groundskeeper at Natural Bridge Hotel, and he told me he was making more money on welfare than he was actually working his nine-to-five job. And I asked him how much he was making, and he told me, here I make 900 a week. Then he showed me his stub from what he collected from unemployment benefits, and my God, like I always knew, it disincentivized people to go back into the workplace. But he went from making like around fifty; he was making sixty thousand a year, and he didn't wow. have to
1: work. Yeah, and I get it that's now. Told us about at the distillery too, is they were having difficulty getting some workers to come back because they were making more money on, on unemployment than they were actually working. And I think that's a real problem because someone's got to make all the stuff that we enjoy. I think there's this real position of privilege you were talking about with working from home and all that. Like we're, you know, as upper kind of middle class people we're able to work from home and a lot of people in DC are able to work from home and have our computers and our zoom meetings, but people who are in service industry jobs can't do that. You know, and it's, it's a little bit, Uh, insensitive for us to sit up here in our luxury apartments and say, oh, yeah, let's just lock everything down. We'll work from home, not realizing that a large proportion of the population can't do that. They have to go out and make stuff or do stuff or serve stuff. And uh, you know, the alternative is they're going to be unemployed. And if we then give everybody these huge unemployment checks, it seems compassionate at first, but you end up, nothing gets done. Just the economy is going to collapse. They tried to do this in Finland with the uh, universal basic income. And I had to stop doing it because nobody was working, nobody was doing anything. Uh, so I think it's really important that people get out and actually, you know, go back to their jobs and do things. And yeah, we have to find ways to do it safely. I dispute that. Um, we need to be cautious, but it needs to be more targeted. We need to protect vulnerable populations. Uh, you know, they made this horrible mistake of putting all these coronavirus patients in nursing homes in New York. Like, what do you think was going to happen? All the nursing home patients are the most vulnerable people. Why would you do that instead of locking down all the uh, all the safe, young, healthy people who don't need to be locked down? And it's these blanket solutions that the, they just don't seem to be thinking. You need to be much more targeted in this approach.
0: I I, I can't tell you without. A second's hesitation. My whole opinion of UBI has completely changed. And I saw it just with that one $1,200 check that went out to everyone. Right. Dude, I saw people spend it on stupid shit. I used it to pay my taxes. So I use government money to pay back the government. So in a way it's like, thank you, Steve Mnuchin. (laughs) But I, I, the, the one thing that's really bothering me is that I think as a society, and I'll, I'll say this as a blanket term, I think that American culture has really demonized the concept of work. And I, I understand it when I hear some people say, well, if grocery store shelf stockers are essential employees, they should get paid more than minimum wage. And it's like, I understand the sentiment behind that. But I don't think we need to increase minimum wage to do that. What do we see with Target, Costco, and Walmart? They gave people cash bonuses. If you um, started working more than 12 hours a week, they gave you an additional uh, 2 $3 to your hourly pay. I, I don't understand why people don't think that businesses will naturally want to incentivize people to work. It seems like we have this entire culture that says anything that's big or makes lots of money is inherently evil for the sake of being evil. If anything, what we've seen is that when, people, when stores are running out of toilet paper, unlike socialist Venezuela, they were stocked the next day. I don't understand it.
1: Yeah, I think a large part of the problem there is that people don't really understand why wages are what they are. People think that if you're working hard or you're working a lot of hours or you're, you know, sweating a lot that you need to get paid a lot because of the effort you're putting in. Um, But work doesn't have anything to do with the amount of effort you put in. It has to do with your contribution and the uniqueness of your contribution to other people. If you're contributing something that, you know, breaking rocks with a hammer takes a lot of work, but anybody can do it. Literally anybody who can lift a hammer can do it. So you're easily replaceable. So there's no reason to pay someone a lot of money to do that because you can get anybody to do that. Um, If you're doing something that no one else can do, that's when you get paid a lot of money. And I think that's where a lot of this resentment comes from. Is people are working hard, they're putting in the hours, they're sweating, they're they're tired, and they think, why am I not getting paid a lot of money? And then they see someone in an office building, you know, in an air-conditioned environment making a fortune, and they don't seem to be working very hard, and they think that's unfair. And I understand that. It's a natural impulse. But I think that it's it comes from economic illiteracy and not understanding that you get paid in proportion to how unique your contribution is to the society. If you're the only one who can do it, you're going to get more than if, if everyone could do it.
0: What do you think are going to be some of the long-term impacts on our, our economy post-corona, both positive and negative, because there are situations like what you documented at Silverback where people can quickly adapt to their needs of their community. They can go from distilling whiskey to making hand sanitizer, and they know that if the call is put out, they can answer it. But then there are other things where it's like if if you were a trucker and you think that After this whole experience, they're going to want to go ahead and hire more people who are going to, you know, maybe get into accidents or they might not be as fast to deliver something or they might not be as efficient in transporting certain goods as possible. Like, I I see this being the rise of the robots to some degree. There's going to be good and there's going to be bad. What are some of the things you see coming out of this?
1: Yeah, I think primarily it's going to be a further concentration of market power in the hands of a few big companies, like we talked about. Uh, and you know, if you're concerned about worker well-being and worker rights and everything, you probably shouldn't be thrilled about that because the giant companies don't treat their workers as well, as a rule, as the uh, the small companies. So that's probably going to happen. Unemployment's going to be high for a while. Um, I think you're right. I think we'll see more automation because when you have a robot doing a job They're not worried about catching a virus and well, I guess a computer virus maybe but not the coronavirus Man Uh, at george mason university
0: where my brother just graduated. They have robots delivering pizza Yeah, they're running into students, but they're delivering pizza And it's like who's gonna want to hire somebody when this robot doesn't need health care Sick days, vacation days, anything else. It doesn't need a 401k. It just delivers.
1: Yeah. So I think we'll see more automation. So basically all the stuff that the left doesn't like, big companies, less worker rights, more automation, that's all going to happen because of the left's policies on coronavirus. And I I don't see a lot of good coming out of it. I mean, I'm not against automation. I think automation is fine. But if automation is driven by policies that make it unprofitable to hire workers, that's probably not a great thing. You know, we should probably try to not direct our policies to make it actively worse to hire a human than to hire a robot. That seems like a bad idea to me. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, those are going to be some of the, the consequences. And then uh, we've already seen shortages and stuff. I know um, our friend Thomas Manasseh, who just got won his uh, primary election in Kentucky, is very concerned about the supply chain for farmers and meat. And we, we have already seen some meat shortages because there's only one kind of growing season in the summer. And if you miss it, then you can't just make it up in the winter. You have to wait a year. So he's very concerned about that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if we have long-term ripple effects from that. But yeah, there's going to be a lot of product that didn't get made. There's going to be a lot of things, that services that didn't get performed, a lot of people who weren't working, and uh, a lot of bank accounts might have been drained. But my one good thing, the thing that I'm really happy about, and this is a whole other subject, but we can get into, I'm glad that the schools are closed. <laughs> As someone who's an advocate for oh homeschooling my gosh. and, and uh, an opponent of government schools, I think that this is a real opportunity for a lot of parents to see that they can maybe do a better job than the government teachers of uh, raising their, their children. So that could be something good that comes out of it, in my view.
0: The one thing I heard more so than anything else coming from parents, especially of young children in either elementary school or middle school, was they did not realize how much time during the day was actually spent towards educating and how much was just daycare. Right. I don't think a lot of people really understood how much time was actually put towards it, because uh, I, I met this one Russian family from Williamsburg. They have a, a preschooler and they have a seventh grader. And what they said was their seventh grader was able to get an entire day's worth of schoolwork done within two hours.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Most of uh, public schooling is, is crowd control. So if you uh, remove that element, you can get a lot more done.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the, the other thing is I know a lot of people that are, you know, they're, they're going to be they're going to be graduating from high school soon. Uh, in Fairfax County, what they're doing is they're only doing half a semester in class and then the rest of the year past Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving through June, it will be all online. And the one positive thing I am hearing is there are a lot of kids that are like, I have time. I can go out and get a job. I can buy my first car. I can make money for school. The fact that, and and, you know, millennials get a lot of shit and I understand it. And when you see them just tearing down statues of Lincoln and stuff and crying for safe spaces and other things and more welfare checks from the man they call a fascist, it, it is quite funny. But the one thing that I do think is, showing in this upcoming generation isn't that they're more conservative minded it's just that they're willing to take more responsibility for certain things i think the zoomers who that i guess that's what we're calling them now despite the fact that they might buy tickets for a trump rally as a prank i think more than enough of them are starting to understand that the millennials you know they didn't work they went to school for degrees that were overinflated went into debt up, getting jobs they could have gotten otherwise if they had just got started working earlier, got an apprenticeship, and that they're constantly riding this debt train through easy access to credit and a constantly printed, printed money supply. And the fact that now I'm hearing people who, when I was a kid, I did not want to work in high school, I didn't. The fact that they're actually excited to go out and work and make money, whether it's working at a local farm, being a cashier, working at McDonald's, that that is something that does actually lift my spirits a little bit.
1: Yeah, I hope you're right about that. There does tend to be kind of a pendulum effect where each generation sort of rebels against their parents. So, uh, yeah, the Zoomers as being kind of the kids of millennials now, they may very much disagree with what the way their parents live their lives and do something different. So we may see how that works out. Um, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic. It's, it's pretty, uh, bleak out there these days, but I'm hoping that good things are coming. Uh, I think they're planning on tearing down a statue of Lincoln three blocks from my house tomorrow. So I might go out and check that out and see what's going on.
0: Constantly, always be live streaming. Always be live streaming. Um, you, you were, you were, we've got a few extra minutes. I'm curious. You were unschooled, right?
1: So yes, uh, me and my sister both were unschooled all the way up until college. And that wasn't that you weren't learning things.
0: It's just that unlike a homeschooler, you didn't have like a set curriculum and stuff. You kind of- That's right. So
1: yeah, the basic philosophy of unschooling is that you just live your life in the world pretty much as you would as an adult and you're allowed to pursue your interests. You're allowed to talk to who you want to talk to, learn what you want to learn. You can take classes, you can go to museums, you can go to libraries- um, and your parents don 't really direct your learning too much, but they facilitate it and they help you they help you get access to the tools you need to learn what you want to learn and The theory is that kids will learn what they need to learn and they won 't learn the stuff they don 't need to learn and It worked out pretty well for me and I think you know children are natural learners if you talk to children before they get into school when they 're like four or three years old they 're curious about everything they want to know how everything works they want to learn. but when you sit them down in the classroom, even if it 's at home and you force them to study things they 're not interested in for six hours a day. It kind of kills that love of learning, and you kind of come to think of learning as a chore. So, the, to the extent you don't have to do that, why would you? Just let them explore the world and learn what they're interested in.
0: Absolutely. The the one thing I kind of want to jump on before we wrap this up is you mentioned, you know, hopefully this will have a positive effect in terms of how we look at uh, the unnecessary amount of waste, fraud, and abuse thrown into our public school system. I mean, the, the one thing that I did during a lot of my time was I took a ton of, I, I find myself actually trying to actively learn more now as a working professional as I did when I was paying thousands of dollars in college. And I've taken multiple courses through Udemy. Uh, you know, I'm a, I, I call myself a proud graduate, a gra- graduate of YTU, YouTube University, I'm hoping that a lot more parents really begin to understand that there are many resources that their kids are already more apt to engage with because they grew up in a world where they only knew the internet and that when it comes to the world around us, whether it's a business shifting its model to go from from liquor to hand sanitizer. Whether or not you know the skills we have now are going to be necessary next year, if we 're going to have to completely change the skill sets we need for a constantly changing world. Ultimately, we're we're always going to be responsible for ourselves. And I can say that, you know, with, you know, the certain mindset of, oh, you know, make the world you want, take all the risks. You are ultimately the one responsible for your own success and failures. But I also understand people who are hesitant of that because they think, oh, I'm a victim of consequences. I don't have the time. I have too much responsibilities. I totally understand that. For people who have really just been struggling through this period what's the biggest lesson you want them to carry with them as we start to look at a post-covid 19 world
1: i think the biggest thing people need to realize is that everything is a balancing act between different alternatives you know everything is a risk every action you take is a risk and you have to decide which risks you're willing to take and which ones you're not willing to take and then everything has a cost So every policy that we implement to try to save lives on the one hand is going to end up impacting lives on the other hand in a certain other way and you have to take all that into consideration so i just like to get people to look at both sides of the issue and you know one of my favorite economists frederick bastiat wrote this famous the Seen and the unseen document which is really all economics is it's trying to see the thing that no one else can see it's trying to see the unintended consequences it's trying to see these hidden effects that happen so just try to be more aware of that and realize yeah we need to save people's lives from viruses but also like when we're doing that we have to make sure we're not costing people's lives through other policies that are short-sighted
0: absolutely so folks i'm going to go ahead and put a link to the film in the show notes today so you can go ahead and see everything that we discussed uh logan if you want to follow you and everything else you and the team at free the people do how can they do so
1: yes uh, we're available at freethepeople.org very easy to find. We're also on YouTube. We're on Instagram. Just type in free the people. Scroll down past the clothing company, free people, because we're not them. <laughs> Click on us and subscribe. Uh, yeah, we're out there.
0: Oh, my Lord. All right, Logan. It's been a great talk. Best of luck in all your ventures and projects. I'll talk to
1: you later. Thanks so much, Rimzo.
0: Other shows and more from the We Are Libertarians Network at wearelibertarians.com.